0: It's Andy Roberts here, curator of the Nasty Basty podcast. How is everyone? I sincerely hope we're all doing well and keeping safe. The last time that you heard anything from me officially was way back in July of 2020 when I covered Blackula along with my good friend Johnny Larkin of Screaming Queens podcast. Little did the world know just what was in store for us as 2020 hitters. It still feels alien to say it, but basically, a worldwide pandemic has hit us. COVID-19 has now caused global chaos, and it's now May of 2021. I lost my dream job of being a graphic designer for a clothing company as I was furloughed, and I also became a parent to three little boys. Because of all this rapid change, I've taken an impromptu year off, even though I've been pretty damn busy in between. I ended up getting my first gig as a writer for a UK-based horror publication called Horrified, and I also got to contribute an essay on modern folklore for the 88 films release of the Urban Legend trilogy that's just come out. Everything's happening really quickly, but now that I'm back, I'm hopefully hoping to come back on a slightly more regular basis than having such a long-winded hiatus. Now, as most of you know, The Nasty Pasty podcast is dedicated to all those films that were available during the video nasty era, exploitation and violent shockers from the 60s, 70s and 80s that littered the shelves of video stores in the early 80s. Now this podcast focuses specifically on films that skirted the obscene video nasties list and escaped any tut-tutting from moral busybodies of the time. Having seen some of these though, the priests really should have seized them too, as they're filled with just as much gore, just as much sex, and just as much perversity. Who even defines obscenity, anyway? Our original series ended in June of 2019, and like many a British sitcom, Nasty Pasty is returning in a semi-random fashion with the occasional special episode. Of course, I've got a schedule of these bonus episodes, so I do intend to return to it at least in a quasi-regular fashion, But today, I'm tackling a film that I've technically been watching, analysing and writing now for about a year and a half. I announced that I was doing this film way back in January of 2020, and it's taken this bloody long to actually get it out there. Was it worth the wait? Well probably not, but still, today we're going to cover the rather obscure Jallo flick from 1974, William Rose's The Girl in Room 2A. So let's get straight into it. A girl named Edie exits her home and is swiftly kidnapped by mysterious figures. Later on, she's tied up naked and cruelly tormented with a metal spike which stabs her continuously before a red-robed figure unties her and kills her by shoving her directly onto the spike. Her body is later discovered at the bottom of a cliff, seemingly dressed as an accident. A young girl called Margaret is then seen being released from jail, with the female guards dubbing her as a strange one. She telephones her social worker, Alicia, to get details of a place to stay, a home belonging to a Mrs. Grant, who's revealed to be the same house from the opening, where she's granted access to room 2A. Trying to eschew any attention, Margaret is shocked when she notices a red puddle under the carpet, and she goes downstairs to chat to Mrs. Grant, who reveals that her son lives with her, and that her husband was killed in a hit-and-run almost 20 years ago. Margaret finds it hard to settle, suffering visions of red-robed and masked figures, as well as hallucinating that she's back in prison. Meanwhile, Mrs Grant's son, Frank, is privy to a heated conversation between his employer, Mr Drees, and a man called Johnson, who's interested in writing a story about Drees' organisation. Shortly afterwards, however, Johnson finds that he's locked in the room, and he's soon visited by two aggressive men who demand he put out the fire in the fireplace. The Red robed Killer then appears, known by the two men, who burns Johnson's hand and attempts to stab him with a metal spike, but Johnson flees and defenestrates himself. The next day, Frank meets Margaret and bonds with her over a walk outside, where he claims his father drowned when he was a kid. Margaret reciprocates and reveals that she was jailed over a misunderstanding involving drugs, but Frank is sceptical, causing Margaret to run away hurt. On her return home, there's a fresh red puddle under the carpet, causing Margaret to complain to Alicia about the room. Alicia offers some money for temporary accommodation, but Margaret refuses out of feeling guilty. On her way back to Mrs. Grant's, she bumps into a man called Jack, Eddie's brother, who reveals her suspicious suicide-slash-murder, and that she stayed in the same room as Margaret. Jack later visits Eddie's boy ex-boyfriend Charlie to ask him about the Grant home, and meet his girlfriend Claire. Charlie admits that he and Eddie got into some legal trouble with theft and that she went to jail, only to be sent to Mrs. Grant's home after her release. Margaret, meanwhile, snoops around in the house and encounters one of the men who attacked Johnson, as well as Frank's workshop, where he makes mannequins and oddities. One of Mrs. Grant's guests, a priest, clashes somewhat with Mr. Drees' organisation ideas, who in turn denigrates the idea of religion. The next morning, Margaret discovers that Jack has rented a room in the next building and they devise an idea to find out about Room 2A's other occupants, before having sex whilst Frank watches from the next building. Mid-afternoon, a new girl arrives at the house called Maria, but Margaret joins Jack on a lead, searching out a previous occupant called Sarah. Meeting her sister, Mrs Craig, they find out that Sarah was also in trouble and suffered major depression before meeting a group of friends who were helping her see right. After being found abandoned in a nightdress miles out into the country, Sarah was then institutionalised. The three go to see her, where she struggles upon being reminded of the house, but does remember being taken to a remote location in the country with other girls, who are being systematically abused and whipped by the red-robed figure, before she makes her escape. Margaret realises from Sarah's doodles that the red figure she saw in her room was in fact the murderer, that night, she's tormented in her room by unseen figures who project lights and macabre images onto her wall, as well as several mutilated corpses before drugging her and removing her. Hearing her screams, Jack tries to attempt rescue but is knocked out by Mrs. Grant with a telephone. Margaret is driven into the country, while Jack is restrained and dumped in a car park on the outskirts of town. Margaret awakes imprisoned and implores Frank to help her escape, but he remains indifferent to her plight and leaves her. Jack returns to the Grant house, finding a machine rigged to continually ooze red fluid into room 2A, as well as pictures in Mrs. Grant's photo albums of a countryside property, which he asks Charlie to take him to. Frank brings a meal to Margaret, containing the key to her cell, while Maria is newly brought in and abused by Drees, branding her an adulteress. Margaret awaits her moment, and then flees, only for Drees to catch Frank helping her, killing him by forcibly hanging him from the ceiling. Margaret is then captured by Drees and taken into a grand room, where a whole gathering of members in robes and suits resides, with the masked killer brandishing a sword. Maria is told she must repent for her sins, with Drees explaining that she must be cleansed, leading the masked man to slice off half her face with the sword, killing her. Jack and Charlie arrive at the countryside mansion, forcing their way in to rescue Margaret, who is being threatened directly by Mrs. Grant and Drees, who are about to immolate her. When Grant learns of her son's murder, though, she becomes uncooperative, causing Drees to push her over and setting her ablaze. The red-masked figure and Drees flee the scene whilst Jack rescues Margaret from her restraints, but Drees is killed by a barely-alive Mrs. Grant just before she expires. Jack gives chase to the red-hooded killer across the surrounding grounds, and as he struggles with them on a cliff edge, he pulls the hood off, revealing Alicia as the killer, just as she plummets to her death, much to the shock, Of Margaret.
1: My husband used to play quite beautifully. Oh, he did? Hmm. Would you like a little sedative in your tea? Sedative? Yes. Just a mild tranquilizing tablet. That's all it is. Not a bit harmful to your system. I use them myself. My doctor, you see, gives them to me. Just a nerve calmer. Try one. Uh, Well, I guess I could use some... something to calm down with. Things get so lonely around here for me, Margaret. That's my husband's picture. On the piano over there. He's been dead now for 20 years. Oh, I'm sorry, really. Yes, he was run over one terrible winter day. Miss him. It wasn't accident? No, it was cold blooded murder. He was killed by a hit and run driver, a hoodlum who just robbed a supermarket. He got 25 years in prison. He'll be out soon. Justice. Evil can only be handled on its own terms. To forgive is to absolve it. But that's against all humanity and all religion, Mrs. Grant. Oh no. It isn't, Margaret. Humanity just hasn't come far enough. No.
0: No. The girl in Room 2A is somewhat odd, even amongst other jallo examples of the 1970s. It's a bit sleazier, it has some fairly nasty sequences of violence and gore, and it lacks a lot of the stylistic, colourful flourishes that usually pepper this particular era of Italian thriller. Of course, this is largely in part due to the fact that the production is actually American origin rather than Italian. To understand this a little bit better, though, we can explore the background of the director briefly. William Rose was born in the 30s in Rochester, New York, and he had a love of theatre and low-budget independent films. He became involved in making nudie or roughy adult films in New York City, and due to his experience in this avenue, he was quite skilled at working simultaneously in the roles of director, writer, and producer throughout his professional output. Rose was friends with the owner of American film distributors, who often acquired foreign films from Europe, which would then be re-edited to have sexier, gorier footage spliced in for the American audiences at the grindhouse. As the 70s hit, hardcore pornography was on the rise, so Rose was out of his usual jobs, as softcore was falling quickly out of fashion. At this point, Rose reacquainted with several classmates at a high school reunion, who were then interested in helping Rose with a script that he'd written, which was entitled Terror in 2A, with aspirations of shooting on location in Italy. While visiting the country for inspiration, they ran into producer Dick Randall, who was more than happy to help finance production of the flick, and after striking a deal for US distribution, Rose travelled to Rome in early 1973 to start production. It was shot in Rome, with some scenes in Manziana, which is near Lake Bracciano. The film was shot under the title Le stranezze della Signora Grant, or The Strange Behaviour of Mrs. Grant. The film is sort of a giallo reimagining of Rose's earlier film in 1965, which is called Rent-A-Girl, in which prostitutes who are pimped out to sleazy clients by their madam, who's also called Mrs. Grant, eventually turn on her and get their revenge. It was released in the U.S. in 1974 and in Italy and Europe in 1975 under the title Casa della Paura, which means House of Fear. It's a primarily English-speaking cast, which is unusual for a Giallo film, so the English dub is actually the preferred version worldwide. Unfortunately, Rose's career never really recovered after the fall of adult films, and The Girl in Room 2A remains one of his last credits in the industry. Other little tidbits from the set was that the film's producer, Dick Randall, was always smiling and always present on the set to help out. And during the sex scene between Margaret and Jack, the nudity was shot with doubles, as the main actress did not actually want to shoot any nudity. Immediately from the get-go, 2A gets the ball rolling with a rather sudden kidnapping and torture of Eddie, which is a bit more gratuitous than the usual Jallo death, with the audience voyeuristically watching as she's repeatedly speared by a metal spike, the blood oozing past her naked breasts. It's not quite Jallo a Venezia level, but it does set things up in a notably sleazy fashion. The film doesn't quite maintain that opening momentum, however, as we're introduced fairly quickly to Margaret, our protagonist, as she's released from jail, and the pacing does grind to a much slower tempo. Margaret is not a particularly special leading lady. She's certainly pretty, and sometimes quite headstrong and ballsy, but she often becomes flimsy when the plot requires it, such as having to be rescued by various men in the film's climax. One of her most interesting features, though, is that of her potential criminal background, as it's neither explicitly confirmed or denied that she's had an involvement with drugs. In terms of the plot, this matters very little, as we'll get into later, but the ambiguity with this point does make her a little more intriguing than the expected common innocent protagonist trope. She of course claims that her jailing was a mistake, but this can be interpreted in a myriad of ways. She certainly seems to be doing the right thing though, especially by accompanying a relative stranger, Jack, at finding out what's happened to his sister. On a side note, she also has quite a bit of skill and patience when it comes to cleaning. She wipes up an entire puddle of red liquid from her room for instance in just a few seconds. Other characters prove to be less interesting overall. Jack is a fairly typical male sidekick who has a bunch of macho buddies like Charlie to accompany him in the amusingly hyper-masculine storming of the countryside mansion in the film's Denouement. Other than that, though, he mainly fills in the love interest role, though his sex game leaves something to be desired. He went from a little few pecks on the cheek to clothes stripped off in less than a few seconds. Romance clearly was dead on this occasion. Frank is pseudo-inspired by a Norman Bates figure, really shyly becoming enamored with Margaret, and not quite consensually roped in to help with his mother's business with Drees. He even has a small workshop where he configures female mannequins, just to add that little extra bit of red herring smell. Drees himself, though charismatic enough in his delivery, is a little bit too one-sided for his character to be too interesting. Almost all of his dialogue is zeal-infused gobbledygook, talking alternately about the folly of man and religion, or punishment and sin, with no real context presented as to how he got these views. Alicia, as well, is innocuous enough, seeming like quite a caring and helpful person to Margaret. It certainly had me fooled, actually. I was genuinely surprised that it was Alicia who was the red-hooded figure. When dressed in this crimson garb as well, I found that image quite unsettling, mostly due to the hint of beige that's behind the eye and the mouth holes. And it also looked quite uncomfortable to wear, which I think accounts for some of it, but nevertheless, it's quite a memorable image in the whole flood of Jello films. The only other character who's on par with Margaret is that of Mrs. Grant, who's both strange and compelling in terms of the performance and the film's narrative seemingly a kindly old lady who opens up her house for troubled young women fresh out of incarceration, Mrs Grant is in fact part of Dries' cult, filtering through these girls and enabling their terrorisation before shipping them out to her country house to be murdered in a ritualistic fashion. It's almost the plot of Hostel, really, in embryo form, but the reasoning behind all this is much more personal. From Margaret's first encounter, Mrs Grant appears to be very sweet, offering her tea, and seemingly interested in Margaret's plans for the future. She also casually offers her a tranquilizer in her tea to calm her down, which is a little creepy and off-kilter, as a lot of Italian jelly are. Margaret, however, seems relatively unfazed by this spontaneous offer of drugs, and accepts. While this was just a bit bizarre on the first viewing, it's only on a rewatch that this moment becomes patently clear. Mrs. Grant is purposefully testing Margaret to see how easily she's convinced to take drugs, thereby affirming her guilt in Mrs. Grant's mind. The matriarch also explains the background of her husband, whom she claims was killed by a hit-and-run driver around 20 years ago, with the perpetrator seemingly being released shortly. She then continues, explaining that you have to fight evil with equal evil, suggesting that she doesn't feel that her husband's death has been vindicated properly. According to Frank, and her priest later, it seems that the true cause of her husband's death is not quite clear, as she seems to change the story from time to time, indicating that she hasn't come to terms with her husband's loss properly. As a result of her vulnerability, she's easily manipulated by Dries, whose binary perspective on the world, and of those he considers sinners, begin to resonate with the pain that she feels, leading her to believe that if she helps to punish evil people, she can absolve her own sadness and make the world better. The fact that she had a priest also suggests that before Drees' influence, she had a relatively strong faith in conventional religion, which has unfortunately become corrupted over time by the opportunistic Drees. Mrs. Grant is sort of a cautionary tale, or at least a case study, into how people are indoctrinated into cults or fringe movements, usually stemming from a vulnerability that's exploited by others, who harness that pain and hurt to direct it towards an innocent party or idea. Of course, it's only when Mrs Grant realises that Drees has killed Frank for his attempt to help Margaret that she finally awakens from her stupor and realises the true nature of Drees. He casually discards her and watches her burn to death in her despair. Thankfully, Grant is at least able to literally have the last laugh as she lances her son's murder in the chest just before she expires with a cackle. Certainly, as character arcs go, she's one of the most interesting factors in the girl in Room 2A which sort of justifies the film's working title of The Strange Behaviour of Mrs. Grant, even if it is just a glib riff on the strange vice of Mrs. Ward. On a personal note, however, the waiter who gives Jack and Margaret their hors d'oeuvres was very, very cute. Gives a whole new meaning to the best beef sandwiches in town. As mentioned before, 2A isn't really a jello flick that you watch for the eye candy cinematography, or the kitsch fashion elements. The film itself has a rather muted feel to it that eschews bright colours and opulence for a more drab, moody feel. The only visual standouts are the few moments of graphic violence or the instances of the red-robed figure, so this isn't one for fans of more eye-popping experiences. Having said that, Margaret's room at Mrs Grant's house does have some very bizarre wallpaper that looks a little bit like Bubonic Plague, which is rather sharply contrasted with the bars of her previous jail cell. The pacing of the film is also a little confused – with such a strong start, it's a shame that the film slows down to a crawl after this initial murder. Fans of Argento or Martino won't be getting their periodic murder set pieces either, unfortunately, because the main body of the film is the investigative work and the mystery, which is rather similar to Aldo Lardo's short Night of the Glass Dolls. In a similar vein, however, to that film, by the final act of the movie, the action ramps up almost thricefold, with a large concatenation of deaths, plot reveals, betrayals, and fisticuffs in the film's climax. While pacing isn't the film's strong suit, there is a great deal of sleaze and gore, at least to spice up the film's irregular patterns. Apart from the film's opening money shot of a nude woman being continuously speared by a spike, you get a face sliced open with a sword, various sexualized whippings, a woman getting burned to death in a rather amusingly quick fashion, a man stabbed in the stomach, a man burned on the hand, a la Bl- Blood and Black Lace, and then throwing himself out of a window. Another great strength, though, is the film's eclectic soundtrack. The opening credits have heavy hints of the main theme tune of Friday the 13th, which had yet to be composed by Harry Manfredini whereas some of the music is reminiscent of the investigative tones in the video game L.A. Noire, or even the tense exploratory music of Tomb Raider. During Margaret's hallucinations and Johnson's death, though, some themes from Andrea Bianchi's Burial Ground prop up, courtesy of the fact that the same composer, Berto Pizzano, worked on the film. In stereotypical Italian fashion, though, there's quite a jolly number playing after Margaret's kidnapped and throughout the rescue attempt by Jack and Charlie, which renders the whole scene quite like the start of an Indiana Jones-style adventure movie. In conclusion, The Girl in Room 2A is certainly not like your average Jallo film. It does lack in the often enjoyable kitsch 70s fashions, lurid visual feasts and prismatic colour schemes that these films often offer, but it does sustain a decent atmosphere, a few good characters and some wildly disorientating violence and pacing to keep you on your toes. For a yellow film entirely conceived by an American crew in the 70s, it manages to be a fairly entertaining experience that you'd do well to seek out. At least once, anyway. Main girl Margaret was played by Italian actress Daniela Giordano, who initially started out in local beauty pageants before she entered the film business, taking on a few roles at the end of the 60s. She's appeared in several examples by notable directors, such as The Case of the Bloody Iris, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I of the Key, Evil Eye, Violent City, and Killer's Gold. She had quit acting by the end of the 70s, and she now lives happily in retirement in her native town of Palermo. Jack was played by John Scanlon, who only really appeared in a handful of films, such as Escape from Alcatraz and Love Spell. Angelo Infanti played the meek Frank, who was a familiar face in other Italian exploitation, like Black Emmanuel, Fragment of Fear, and Four Dollars of Revenge but he also had a small bit role in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. The sultry Rosalba Neri portrayed the devious Alicia, who'd been a bit of a sex symbol in Italian films throughout the 60s and 70s, appearing in Top Sensation, 99 Women, Cold-Blooded Beast, A Muck, Smile Before Death, and The French Sex Murders. Brad Harris, who played Charlie, was also no stranger to Italian cult films, appearing in a whole host of Italian spy and war rip-offs before appearing notably in Video Nasty The Beast in Heat, Hercules with the eye-poppingly masculine Lou Ferrigno, and in a related way, the Incredible Hulk TV series. Mrs. Grant was played by actress Giovanna Galletti, who had a varied career within Italy, appearing in The Awful Story of the Nun of Monza, Last Tango in Paris, and even Samuel Fuller's war epic The Big Red One, which interestingly was accidentally seized during the Nasty Scare as a potentially pornographic seizure. Though her role was quite small, Maria was played by Corinne Schubert, a German actress who'd already been in Cold Eyes of Fear and later popped up in Black Emmanuel. This was quite a signifier for her career, as she later became a starlet in pornographic films before retiring in the mid-90s. Raph Vallone, who played Dries, also has a few interesting projects in his filmography, including The Italian Job and a small role in The Godfather Part III whilst one of Dries' henchmen was played by Salvatore Billa, who'd had similar roles in Fulci's Contraband, The Big Racket, Fear in the City, Once Upon a Time in America, and The Godfather Part Three. As mentioned before, director William Rose was mostly known for his softcore work in the 60s, most of which are sadly lost now. Some of his surviving examples include 50,000 BC, Before Clothing, Rent-A-Girl, The Smut Peddler, and Professor Lust. The Girl in Room 2A is his final film, and not much has been seen of him since, unfortunately. The film's producer, Dick Randall, also helped to direct certain sequences, and he fulfilled similar roles on other productions, like the slasher film Pieces, Emmanuel 3, the British slasher film Don't Open Till Christmas, and equally British Slaughter High. The film was also written by Rose, though it did have some edits by Gianfranco Baldinello who'd worked on a variety of spaghetti westerns in both writing and directing capacities. The music was done by the aforementioned Berto Pizzano, most known for his work on Andrea Bianchi's films like Burial Ground, Malabimba, Strip Nude for Your Killer, and Exciting Love Girls, but he also worked on Giallo a Venezia and Patrick Still Lives. The editing was done by Piero Bruni, who'd worked similarly to writer Baldinello on many spaghetti westerns, and she was assisted by Gianfranco Simoncelli, who'd worked on stuff like Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, and Death Smiles on a Murderer. Finally, the makeup and the special effects were done by Liliana Dulac, who'd worked on stuff like Django's Cut Price Corpses, So Sweet, So Dead, The Devil's Wedding Night, and even The Infamous Caligula. The film didn't actually have a VHS release in the UK, and it skipped the cinema too, so the police at the time wouldn't have even considered this film as a nasty. It just wasn't in distribution enough there was however an american import at the time from prism entertainment so dedicated collectors may have traded the film in secret but there was certainly no publicly available version and things sadly haven't improved since as the uk still has no legitimate release on dvd or blu-ray the us however fares much much better with an uncut dvd from mondo macabro and a recently restored blu-ray release as part of Vinegar Syndrome's Forgotten Jally Volume 2 box set, which bundles it with My Dear Killer and The French Sex Murders. And I imagine that this would be an even better experience, as the colours and the tones would be greatly improved. So, just go out and get it! That's all I've got time for, I'm afraid, folks, but never you mind. I won't be taking as much of a hiatus as last time, and I'm going to try and cram in another episode shortly. I've slightly updated my schedule to add two new films to the watch list, so next time I'll be covering the Nico Mastarakis action thriller The Zero Boys from 1986. Until then, though, please everyone stay safe, keep yourselves busy, and watch more horror movies for me. Adieu!